0: Welcome to the Learner.co show, hosted by Kevin Horick and his fellow Learner co founders. Listen in as groundbreaking leaders discuss what they've learned, discover the books, podcasts, presentations, courses, research, articles, and lessons that shape their journey. To listen to past episodes and find links to all sources of learning mentioned, visit learner.co. That's learner with two L's.co.
1: Welcome back to the Learner.co show. Today we have Hampus Jacobson. He's a general partner at Pale Blue Dot. John and Greg, what are you guys excited about to uh, talk with Hampus today? He's he's done a ton of pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, well, Mm -hmm. based on, well, he's a, it is going to be an interesting episode. Um, He's, he's the, I think the first guest we've had that's really involved in what climate tech and um, I'm. That's going to be fascinating Um, how he looks at climate tech as a as a sector and what they're investing in and where he sees that going. I think that's going to be really interesting to explore.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm super excited because Hampus really strikes me. I don't know him yet, but uh, he really strikes me as as the classic lifelong learner. I mean, he's a guy that has has made a made his path on kind of uncharted waters a lot of the time and uh and and changed directions uh, to different types of things through the course of his career so fascinated to see you know what the what the genesis was for a lot of these ideas and and thoughts that he's brought to the world
1: when i've talked to him in the past his stories around google his blackberry stuff um, and, and a bunch of other stuff that he'll probably talk about in, in the show are, it, it's very good. It fits in with everything I think that we're going to cover today, but it's just, he's had an incredible career. He's done some pretty incredible things and he'll talk through, you know, like the brutal honesty of that, which I think a lot of people don't sometimes. And and so it's, it's pretty cool to get that like firsthand uh, from somebody like him that's been that successful.
0: Yeah, and and maybe just a little bit giddy because he has been super successful and he's worked on some really cool stuff that that we think is pretty neat. So I guess I'm excited just about that too.
1: All right, on with the show.
0: Yep. Sounds good.
1: How's it going, Uh, man? Long time no talk.
2: It was a long time ago. How are you? Yeah, Very well, you? Yeah, things are good. It's uh, quite intense, honestly, but it's um, I think it's self-created. I, I also have uh, Greg and
1: John on. They're also co-founders of Learner, and they sit in. Sometimes they feed me questions, and they really wanted to meet you, especially after you spent all that time and effort putting together that list of uh, books and courses and podcasts.
2: Yeah, the scary part, actually, is was it wasn't actually a lot of time. What I did, essentially, was like I just did a quick check on things that were starred in one of the systems I use. So okay. I just essentially took everything that was starred, and then I linked it. And then the other thing I did is I pruned out stuff that when I looked at the star, I was like, uh, why did I start this one? Uh I don't remember this book actually, or this podcast or moved <laughs> up. So the crazy thing is this is a boiled down version, which i oh, wow. me really scared. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was the scariest piece of it When it's like I'm sending like a wall of text and like, yeah, this is like now the net list. Like I just felt like, oh my god. So
0: well, it's great. terrific. Thank,
1: Thank you. you
2: very much. Yeah. It's a Thank pleasure you. to be no here. No worries.
1: Um, Vic, what app by chance were you compiling that list in?
2: Um, I mean it was just Google Docs, but what I did oh, is okay. I took uh, I, I took uh, no, no what I did is I looked, goodreads and um Pocket Cast. So right. uh, so what I did essentially is like goodreads I use for everything read and I some things I read on dead trees mm-hmm. and some things I audiobook listen. And there is actually a bit of a it's not random. It is actually I only read fiction on paper and like, I only read, like it's both directional, like every fiction I read is paper, everything I read on paper is fiction. And then I only listen to uh, textbooks. So I think for me it is like, it is, I think it's actually, I don't think it's, I think it's rather logical. Cause the thing is I can listen to textbooks at like 1.5x speed. But yeah. I wouldn't see there's any point of listening to fiction at dot x speed. <laughs> it's like, it feels like it's <laughs> kind of like saying you could have sex faster. It's just like uh, <laughs> <laughs> kind of one of the points I think is like, you know, being able to sit and really enjoy a book and be like, oh, this is really well-crafted fiction or I really like that character or whatever. So I think it's, uh, that's why they're, they're two different platforms. And then just like everything gets to Goodreads in the end. And I use Goodreads for tagging stuff I want to read as well. So I just have a kind of cue on being able to, and, uh, and actually a lot of times nowadays when I go on calls, uh, yeah. like, you know, for work and when I need to meet a new person or if I do recruitment for one of our portfolio companies or anything, um, if it's a kind of a interesting person, you know, it's just like one more person for the company. If it's like a, you know, like a high level business person or like, you know, somebody who's going to be the COO or something where I feel like this person is like, you know, big shot in some way. I think yeah. it's a great interview question to say, yeah, what, you know, what book do you like? You know, if you would recommend me a book, which one would it be? Uh, and a uh, fiction book. And I think it's super interesting because people really, yeah, people give really interesting recommendations. Like, it's really interesting. Like, so I have it as a standard interview question, which just means I get quite a lot of recommendations. And then as soon as a book gets more than two recommendations, I just like, okay, flag it as an I probably should investigate this book. And then I figure out, I kind of like books that have lots of five-star, lots of two-star ratings. Why so I that? end up not... I think a lot of books that have like three and four stars are a lot like books that, you know, it's like, yeah, it was a it was okay, but like, you know, it wasn't the best book I read, but it was like it was nice. And then I think the books that get like five star and and one star or five star, two star are usually books that are like it's an awesome book if you're the right person and it's a horrible book if you're not the right person. So then I just look at the reviews and try to figure out, am I in the hate or love camp? Um, so for example, any book that has touching anything with religion, um, like fiction books, I mean, if it's like, yeah. this has some connection to Christianity, then it's just like, they're they're like a lot of one star reviews, which is like, this idiot doesn't understand God. And you're like, okay, and I, have no, I don't have a problem with it. So then I feel, okay, cool, interesting. So the people give it five stars, then I read them. And if they say, this is the first person that, like, you know, blah blah blah. Then I feel like, oh damn, this is not politics. So, like, it's really interesting to read the reviews on those. Very cool. Well,
0: kind of. I think the show is you... basically started right now. Like, this was great.
2: Yeah,
1: like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can we can we use this? Um, yeah, of yeah. course. Um, no, use anything. I stand. By edit things. that in, Kevin. Yeah, I just gotta really say,
0: a, your one thing you should listen to as a fiction book, if you've got. I've I've mm-hmm. listened with my kids now. I'm not not always listening myself, but my kids have listened mm-hmm. to the Harry Potter series all the way through four times during the pandemic so far (laughs) oh that's crazy and it's spectacular it's actually listenable the fourth time through so i have
2: overdosed slightly on harry potter i have three kids so okay there you go i i read book
0: like one to three
2: on my own because i was in the uk when they were not new but like kind of like it was strange being in the uk and had not read them when i was like 20s so it was a little bit like yeah. it was so 20 years ago it was like they were pretty fresh it was strange people at work had read them so i just ended up reading the first three books and then when i got my first kid like i read all the books for him and then hey there are two more kids and then you have a couple <laughs> of times when you're on a plane and then you just happen to like end up watching him so like right now i feel like i can like speak like some of the characters now and i feel like oh my god like i like i know them too well but yeah. it's uh, yeah <laughs> i would say like if you haven't read uh, the graveyard book um i would say that's uh the graveyard book and um by neil neil gaiman and uh the golden compass those are like really awesome kids books for like for the grown-up as well like it's it's kind of like simpson style like you know you you read them and then the kid goes like this is exciting and you go this is super smart like this is i want to read this book so the graveyard book actually started reading from my oldest kid when he was like 10 and then like read one chapter one evening and he was like ah, i don't want to read it i was like okay fine and then he went to bed and then i just like you know sat and continued reading three more chapters and then i more or less finished the book the next day i was like this is a good book and then i told him <laughs> the day after i was like i actually finished the gregor book and he was like what i was like yeah it was really good and he said why don't we continue and i was like yeah i read it now so let's go and then i read it for him so i was like wow and then i read it for the other kids as well so i know that yeah. book as well but it's a good book cool giving you a bit of background. Um, so I grew up in it's actually really fascinating. I, not like where I grew up, but like how I how I reflect about like growing up and like what you're shaped by. I think it's a really interesting subject. So I grew up in absolutely nowhere land. Like in Sweden, in a super small place. It's like there are 50 houses. It's absolutely nothing. There's nothing there's not there's not even like a you know a small supermarket. There's not nothing. Like there's nothing. It's 50 houses out in nowhere land. And it's not like there's like you could drive for 15 minutes and then there's like a small place where the small shop drive mm-hmm. for half an hour and there's like a supermarket and like a mall and whatever so it's like one of those places and it's not suburbia it's not that i grew up just next to big c it was like an hour drive to like if, if you want to buy i think an example would be like magic the gathering cards or whatever you know something yeah. which is obviously not at whole foods well maybe it's actually at whole foods but you know what i mean I had to like, it was a one hour drive at least. Wow. Um, so it was like, and that's like one hour highway, boom. And then you get to the city and then of course you find the shop. So it was outside lot. And so, no land. And then I went to like, you know, microscopic meaningless school kind of thing. Like, it's not that I had anything, nothing happened. And I think that it was interesting because I think a lot about my kids. And I think that I really feel that I think a lot about education I think a lot about how do you get shaped by the people around you how do you get to see the world how do you get to see different ambition levels how do you get inspired inspiration and curiosity and if I think about my youth my youth was like there was none of that like I mean there, there there were there were plenty of things happening but it was not that that somebody tried to get me into anything like that um so my parents are kind of scientists and teachers I have three older brothers that are a lot older than I am so they're Uh, and eight and nine and 11 years older than I am. So essentially I kind of have five parents. That means that nobody really cared what I did, not in a bad way, but if I suddenly said, oh, what if you get to like top of a tree with a BB gun and you jump out and try to shoot the balloon, then people were just like, yeah, okay. Because someone else had already done it. So it's not that like, and and, like it was there, like you run with scissors when like, you know, literally then one of my parents would probably go that's not super smart but they kind of like very whatever kind of and not that they didn't There was there was not like a household without love or anything it was just like i have three older brothers they've done all the stupid you can ever imagine and it was <laughs> fine and there were some things of course if you say i want to do this thing where my parents were like "Seen that don't do it and but very 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 few things um and I have done a couple of like really stupid things. Like I skied out, out of, a, of a cliff and fell like eight meters, uh, wow. so like a, really far down onto a snow ledge and then I had to figure out how to get down from there. Um, once when we were skiing in Austria, uh, we were up on the mountain, took one of those like cabins up, like, you know, far, far up in the mountain. I was, I was seven, I uh, was another kid, another family, he was 10 and my parents in that family This kid and I started skiing and after skiing for 10 minutes, we realized we're on the wrong slope. And then I realized after a couple of minutes we're in Italy. And this guy just totally freaked out. He was like, we're going to the wrong country. And my parents realized after skiing for 15 minutes, the guys aren't here. They must've taken the left turn up there. They're going down to Italy. And then the other family's parents, they just panicked. They were just like, oh my god oh my god oh my god here's another country can we walk up and you can't you can't walk up a you know a slope that's impossible right and my right. parents were just like i think it's going to work out and then this guy's parents were like oh does hamper speak italian and my parents were i don't really know <laughs> uh, and then of course like an hour and a half later i came like we came with a taxi around the mountain and the taxi driver like came up to our hotel and just asked the parents to pay an infinite amount of money for driving around a mountain and then the kid next to me was three years older. He was just shaking in the car. He was just like in total like panic mode because he was never going to meet his parents again. I felt, okay, I guess we're going to get down. We're going to get a taxi driver. I have to explain with him in some way that we're on the wrong side of the mountain. I mean, it's going to be fine. And I think that's kind of how I grew up. So I had to think a lot and totally fine with that but not that there was like a special school program, not that there were cool tinkering toys. Like all of the things we think about now with kids, it's just like, oh, can you find an interesting program like where they get to, I don't know, build robots or anything. Absolutely, like super absolutely nothing like that. Um, And then same thing when I went to high school, there was absolutely nothing. I was in a super boring little city, nothing happened. A lot of people just started like smoking behind the fence and stuff and it was just nothing happened. And I happened to, very randomly, I happened to have, um, there was an awesome librarian at the school. She was okay. a super, super peculiar person and a really wonderful person. So one of the first weeks I came to school, like went into the library and this really funny woman is there and we end up talking about books and she treated me completely, and she treated everybody like completely like grown up. And I remember because I, re- I like reading, Um, I was the guy who read everywhere, like when I walked and whatever, I just read. And I didn't really like some good fiction or anything. I just read stuff. Uh, Could read like, you know, Pulp Fiction for kids or whatever. Um, And then she was just like amazing. She was really interesting at just, you know, you came in with a, she didn't like fantasy books, for example. I read a lot of fantasy when I was a kid and she completely respected the fact that I liked fantasy. So I came in with a fantasy book. She was like, what's that? And I was like, "Um, it's, it's the Bulgarian. It's uh, and she was like, oh, yeah, I've read about Eddings. And I said, oh, you've read about Eddings, but you haven't read Eddings. And she's like, no, I think a lot of fantasy is very archetypical. You know what archetypical is? And I was like, no. Have you thought about a lot of fantasy books? There's the like, there's the strong one, like the brute, like the barbarian guy, and he's a bit stupid but he's very strong. There's the smart one, the magician. He's a bit above everybody else in a sense. There's the cunning one, the thief. Kind of you can't really trust him. I was like, yeah. And he said, that's very comforting, right? And I was like, whoa, I've never thought about this. I was like, yeah, you're right. It's pretty comforting. And she says, yeah. But in a sense, fancy books is a lot about getting you to feel you know how the world works and you still get on an adventure. And when she said that, I was like, you're a genius. Like, this is like, I've never thought about this. And then I just started talking books about her with her, like on a weekly basis. Just, and she said like, oh, you should read Color Purple. I remember when she said that. I was like, Color of Purple? And the thing is, if you're in the US, I think a lot of people like have to read color purple. But like, if you're in, in Europe, nobody, like, it's not a, it's not a subject book at all. And okay. I was like, I don't know, I'm 14 years old. So prime time, it's a good time to read color purple. And I pick up the book and I really, really like it. And I was like, this is a really good book. And she was like, yeah, what do you think about it? And I ended up having like, you know, an extra, you know, language teacher, just like an extra teacher who just cared about reading and talked about it to her a lot. And I think that shaped me a lot just. Broadening my mind, I read a lot of books that I wouldn't have read as like a fourteen to sixteen year old because yeah, you know you read kind of what what's what you you think is good, which has the right covers and whatever. And she was super interesting because she could really whatever book you read, she could really just respect it. She could just say, oh, interesting. So you're reading another fantasy and like you know very colorful front and everything. What's this about? And we started talking about it, and then she just you know she was really respectful there wasn't like high and low literature she was just like talking to you um but i think that really shaped me as a kid started reading a lot and i went That's to fascinating yeah and, it, and like it's not something i thought about then actually the the freaky thing is that when when i was a kid there it was not that i thought whoa i've got an extraordinary you know librarian friend it was just like yeah you know i don't know maybe most 14 year olds don't like reflect about upon reality around them um and then I went to college and I think then started, stuff started changing. Like I started meeting more people, you know, with my own interests. And I think it was, I kind of, before that, I wasn't a loner, but it was, I was, I was definitely a nerd putting that way. So like, like I had, we were a crowd that did our stuff and I just didn't bother about other stuff. And when I came to college that all changed, I guess it does for most people. Right. So just started meeting a lot of different people, met a girl. Um, and actually kind of in a bit, fell out of reading a bit. I kind of more, yeah, more folks on other parts of life in a sense, still read, but wasn't as manical about it. Uh, that's the problem with girlfriend and boyfriends, I guess. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it uh, it was good and like educational for other aspects uh, and fun. Um, and then when I went to university, also kind of like not an extraordinary university shape or form, a good university, but not like, Oh my god if i would pick university that my kids would ever go to i would pick this university but like a totally fine university and then i was only reading uh textbooks like nonfiction. fiction like i literally only cared about solutions to problems i had so i was thinking a lot about like how do you structure arguments whatever then i read a book about that if i thought about how do you you know run software projects i read books about that so i read one or two fiction books per year maybe but it was i don't know when i was traveling or something but i kind of fell out of it and by then i randomly started a company with five of my friends i had during the summers i started working at different companies in different countries essentially it was a trick that i wanted to work abroad i just wanted to figure okay. out a way to uh, work in other countries so what i did is like when when kind of february march came along i just tried to find a company in another country where i could work at and do something which is fairly qualified um what this means in reality means that there is a bit of a flexible way of looking at the truth because if you kind of apply for a, for a job in another country and it's in a you know a real job and yeah it's an internship so obviously not, it's not like you know crazy qualified important job but it's not that i'm going to say i'm going to carry papers and hold your cup of coffee so what I did is like, yeah, I like I found this company in Paris and they did um, smart cards. So essentially kind of credit card security. Okay. Kind of asked them, hey, can I work here and do an internship during the summer? And then when they kind of said, uh, I don't know, whatever, I kind of said, I'm so-, like, I'm sorry because like it's mandatory for my school. So I can't get a degree unless I've done an internship, which was, was that actually true? No, not at all. I like, was like, not even close <laughs> to the truth. There's nothing in this at all. And of course, what happens then if you're an employer, you're like, Okay, okay, we'll look at replication because like you feel kind of like a bit obliged, right? You feel like okay, <laughs> okay, okay, let's look at this. And then this guy like calls me up and says, like, uh, hello, my name, is, my name is David Lakash. I have a couple of questions for you. And I was like, Yeah, what are your questions? So, do you know cryptography? And I was like, Cryptography, and like I didn't know anything about cryptography. I was like <laughs> the first year at uni, right? So I was like, Yeah, hey, yeah, I mean I, I do computer science. I was like, Oh, impressive with Swedish universities. Do you know A11 Assembler? And I was like, I didn't really hear what he said. I was like, Assembler, something, and that's a programming language. So I was like, yeah, yeah, my fair, sh- my fair share. I, I do, do, do computer science. He was like, oh, okay. I would love to have you as an intern because I, I was like, oh, that was amazing. And of course, I had no idea. So then, what happened is like, he sends me an email, and the two things he says, I like just panic study them now for three months because now it's like it's March. I'm going to be there in June. I'm going to be here for three months and build something important. And then I did that every single summer. So like, I went to first Paris, then London, then Munich. And it was in Germany and it was great because you got out of my comfort zone, got to meet a lot of new people, you know, got to work at a real job. Like, I, you know, really real job. I came there and the first year I I didn't know at all what I was doing. Luckily, I had spent three months thinking about it and, and studied. So I actually was fairly good at it. But it was I was a craftsperson like. If somebody said any question outside my domain, I hadn't I didn't even know how to answer it. I didn't know how to calendar worked, of course. Like I'm I'm an I'm a student, right? right? Um and then next year, because I'd worked abroad, came to the next place, I come to London, I have done this thing. So suddenly I feel like I can actually have a discussion with my colleagues, I like can like I can actually like help out with stuff. Had a really amazing incident in London, which would be funny. So every morning I walk and read a book because I happen to live in a part of London and the, my job is in a part of London where There are no direct buses and no direct uh, like uh, tubes, like uh, subways or anything. So essentially the smart, like I can can switch two or three times and get there, but I could just walk for 30 minutes and get there. I I was thinking a lot of times of buying a skateboard and just skateboard through it because you don't want to bike in London. And at the end of the day, I just felt, I'm just gonna walk. I'm just gonna get up every morning, get out of this super crammy small place I'm living at, get a, you know, something to eat and then have a book and read. So every morning I walk with a book in my hand to work for 30, 35 minutes and reading wow. fiction books. Now, got into fiction again. And it, the interesting thing is, because it's summer, I guess, as well, actually, and I'm alone. So, like, that's like, you know, more, more like that. So, the funny thing is that what happens now, and this really funny incident. So, think about the mood. If you just got out of bed, you didn't have coffee or anything, you're walking <laughs> with a fiction book and you're walking for half an hour. You're not low, but you're not full of energy, right? You're just, right. you're kind of like a bit mellow almost. And then I got into work. They have a really awesome espresso machine. It's a really small place where 12 people. I come in, I get an espresso, and then because I'm Swedish, in Sweden, it's pretty normal to have fluoride, like for teeth, like, uh, so yeah. So okay. So like so what happens is I drink a cup of espresso, I rinse my teeth, because the problem is like, I'm at work now, so I don't have a toothbrush, which I feel a bit off. So then I like chew a chewing gum, and then I have a fluoride to think, this is maybe help my teeth. And then I go around and talk to my colleagues. I'm the kind of person, if I drink a cup of coffee, like I get quite intense. Otherwise, (laughs) as you hear now, I'm completely like chill. But when a cup of coffee comes in, I'm pretty intense. What happens after three days is one of my colleagues goes up to me and says, hey, Hampus, can we just talk? And I was like, yeah, of course. Like I've been here for a week, right? So like, what's going on? He's like, so it is completely okay that you do, you know, know, at work, and I'm like, do I do I was thinking, what have I done wrong? I've been here for a couple of days, like I've done something wrong, obviously, right? But but what what you you can't offer it to other people during work hours. And I was like, sorry? You 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 can't offer it to you to us during your work hours. I was like, what am I offering? I don't want to spell it out to you, but like I, I you need to spell it out. Like I don't I don't <laughs> want to follow it. Speed. I was like, sorry, it's okay, but you can't give hard drugs to people at work. I was like, hard drugs? What are (laughs) you talking about? In the morning, hampers, we get it. I was like, what do you mean? You get here, you pop a pill, you're honestly intense ass, it's funny, (laughs) but you can't give it to the colleagues. Nobody can work on, you can't, but nobody else can work on speed. And I'm like, oh, they're they're fluorides for my teeth. And my colleague just looks at me and is like, oh. And I was like, I've been here for four days. Do you think I got here every morning and like popped speed? Like, <laughs> you're amazing. And you haven't fired me yet. I was like, oh, I love this place. So it was an amazing <laughs> summer working with these people who were obviously the most open-minded people I've ever worked with in my life. It was just like, oh my God, you thought I had LSD and you thought it was chill, just like as long as I didn't give it anyone else. So it was a very interesting summer. It was really great. They had a lot of other funky ideas, but I think then I kind of got back into fiction reading, honestly. I like writing the summers and then started starting this company randomly because I've been all these places. I've seen a lot of different things. And then a couple of friends that I started this, randomly started this company, as I said, five of my friends, and it came inspiration for things we've done during the summers at different places. And this company completely, serendipitously, honestly, scales from the six friends of us to 180 people. Wow. the business plan is was originally learn and like work with nice people and have fun. And I'm not saying like, like it was work with good people. It wasn't like have fun as in like we're just going to, you know, invoice and just not care. We were really hardworking because I think that what scared us is that we had a lot of friends who kind of had similar degrees that, uh, that we did, who were one year older or we had a military service. So like we had like losty or quote unquote. So we had a lot of friends who were same age, or one year older, who were working at these super places. Like they were software developers, kind of like what we were, and it was um, 1999. So like if you're a software developer, you were kind of hard currency. But the thing is, if you're kind of 20 years old, like nobody treats you particularly well. I think it's changed nowadays. I think if you're a really amazing developer at something and you're 19, people will just pay you anything. And, but I think back then it was it wasn't really. So we just realized, like, if we go and work for one of these big software giants, we're going to be like software testers or something. And we don't want to do that. We want to build stuff for real. So the first year, our only ambition was essentially to not get hired, but like, you know, to work, you know, do a project, do a consultancy project, do some professional services and do whatever we wanted ourselves. Not having to handle office hours or meeting rooms or calendar bookings, whatever, just do fun stuff. And that was the business plan. It was literally the whole thing. And Amazing. what happened is we, we just stumbled into a place. Like we stumbled in to just, you know, tripped on a banana shell onto <laughs> having, yeah, it was really absurd, but like during your first year, Sony, the big, like, you know, kind of consumer electronics giant, Japanese company buys Ericsson. And Ericsson is like one of the leading companies in the world then on mobile phones. Mobile phones look like tiny idiot, idiotic elements like text displays. <laughs> Sony obviously wants these to be like entertainment devices and because Swedish people and Japanese people neither of them are very direct what happens is that Japanese people have said that you can build this the Swedish people were like yes we can build this and like not maybe kind of saying maybe not because you just like you just don't want to be nasty and the Japanese people they're not the people that can push you and like you know check check one more time so it's kind of a bit of misunderstanding. (laughs) <laughs> so during like this happened just during our first year and then one Amazing. of our friends, it was actually pretty crazy because one of our friends happened to be in one of these projects and he calls us up in panic and says, we have to build this like multimedia phone. And we were like, yeah, I mean, you can just buy a computer and do like cool stuff and they're like, yeah, you don't get it. Mobile phones are just total crap. Like they don't have, there's no memory, there's no processing power, the screen is and now the problem is that Sony may, now has to make screens. So we're getting a phone now, which has a pretty blazing, amazing screen. And we were like, whoa, I was like, yeah, but listen, it has the same processor and the same memory. So essentially we now have a microeleven trying to run like a screen, like a real screen. And we were like, that's never gonna work. He said, I know. And my ass is on the line.
1: <laughs> we're like,
2: oh my God, uh, can we help out? Because like, you know, we'd love doing stuff. So like, can we help him? He was like, yeah, please. And then you know completely randomly again we were just hardworking. we just put our minds together and said let's try to build something in this and very luckily we figured out something smart and then when we get to meet them you know we meet his boss and he says like can you do this and we demo it and the boss is just looking at it staring at the screen is like oh this is amazing we're like yeah okay cool and he's they were <laughs> like how much do you want to get paid for it and we didn't want to work with mobile phones we just want to help our friend so we just essentially wanted them to say, we'll get it. Thank you very much. We'll pay you. And then bye-bye. Because we felt mobile phones, <laughs> you know, it's year 2001. Nothing's right. going to happen here. It's going to be the boringest ever. Um, <laughs> so we just said, well, we thought about the biggest project we've ever done. And that paid us $50,000. So we looked at this Sony Ericsson guy, big shot in the eye, and just like, you'll have to pay us $50,000. And he was like... <laughs> 50,000 bucks you mean per like per phone model or and we're like oh he doesn't get it like he thinks it's gonna be so we're like yeah per phone model as then just like go away right it's like it's gonna be really expensive that's what we thought and this guy was like <laughs> okay and then i guess you're gonna be paid you go you need like you know nre and we're just like looked at it like i didn't know nre i don't understand what he's saying so he was <laughs> like i mean integration services and we're like yeah exactly. Okay, and you're gonna charge normal fees. I'm like, yeah. And I just like, what's this guy doing? He said, <laughs> Okay, I'll get back to you with a suggestion. Okay, great. And then the like the friend of us and the his boss walks out. We're like, okay, I don't really know what happens. And this guy gets back to us and says, Yeah, we want to build like 10 phones the first year, and then you know, we're gonna pay you, you know, so obviously fifty thousand bucks per phone, so that's 500000 dollars. Plus, um then uh like I think it was 60, $70 per hour for the integration service. And we expect like, you know, whatever, we're like 5,000 hours or whatever. And we just looked at this number and we're like, they're gonna pay mm-hmm. us crazy amount of money. And then we felt maybe, I mean, even if mobile phones are dumb and nothing nothing's gonna happen ever, like why not do this project? We're helping our friends and like, we're gonna be paid an immense amount of money, which means that after that we can just do whatever we want. Because I mean, they're gonna end up paying us like, like maybe like a million dollars over a year or something, which is just insanity. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of what happened. Like we were 10 people, you know, worked for a year of them, got a million dollars. The thing is, that sounds like a lot of money, but if you're 10 people, you kind of need a million dollars to pay your salary. Um, sure. So we kind of like, we, but for us, you know, we were students, it was just crazy. And then that just, that whole thing just snowballed to be us shipping in more than 13, 14% of all the world's phones wow. from, from Son Ericsson, from from Motorola, from Nokia, from Samsung. And then like we end up working with Google. We just ended up working with everybody. And it was just, I don't know. We had a view that you just we try to hire people that we felt were hard workers and serious and really, really smart and really fun to work with. And we just felt, you know, we're gonna be pretty frugal. We're not gonna like be silly and fly business class and buy, you know, chairs for the office that are $50,000 or whatever. We're just going to be like, you know, if you need a chair, then you get a chair. Right. But yeah, you don't need champagne just because it's Friday. It's just like, yeah, we're <laughs> students. Like we, we don't cost anything. Like we have literally zero budget for, for things before. So that just scale a company to hundred people with offices in, in Tokyo and Taipei and, wow and, and Seoul and, and Chicago and San Francisco and stuff. And it was just like crazy. And it was really, really, really crazy. And I think, I think I learned so much and, some of the things I learned I learned by asking a lot of people so just okay. ended up asking and for help but the thing which I think is the thing I, but the other thing I learned was actually through reading a lot of books and I think the reason for that is I think that I think that there now it's changed a bit but I think that back then if you're 25 and you ask for advice like how am I going to be a good leader? I think that back then, this is like, you know, 2005 or 2010, even maybe, there's nobody takes you seriously. Like, people will just look at like, how are you going to be a good leader? They're like, yeah, I don't know, like, you know, do an MBA. And it's like, do an MBA? I don't want to do an MBA. And they're like, no, I mean, spend a couple of years in the military. And it's like spending a couple years in the military, like, I have this problem now. And it's not that that back then in 205 or, or like slightly later, it's not that there were like amazing coaches for 25 year olds. People ever ever expected you to be, you know, kind of a silverback and have a grown up in the room and all of it, and we had nothing. So it just ended up being like, okay, who's written anything about this? And then you just you find all those books and you read them, and you just try to pick it apart and learn everything. So there's so many of those books where it was just extraordinary. I remember I think it was Good to Great was one of those books where yeah. uh, by Dave, by James Collins, Jim Collins. I remember like the first time I got it and started reading it. And I just felt this is, I just wish I read this two years ago. It's just so good. It just explains exactly what I've been going through. And what, of course, what I didn't understand is if I read it two years earlier, I probably would have said, what's this business book? Like, this is just <laughs> meaningless. This is not a real problem. And I think every single book I ended up reading was like a book where I just wished I read it an early, a year earlier, but I think that most of them, of course, wouldn't have worked then. Um, and there were so many of those books, I just, I just felt this is the truth, capital T truth. And it took a lot of time for me to pick it apart and realize that it's not the truth. This is like somebody smart summarized it and yeah, like it's like part of it was true then, part of it's probably true now, and that's like that's what it is. So that's career-wise, I ended up reading a lot and learning a lot. And then then randomly we got acquired by BlackBerry. Very cool. And they were at the yeah. top of the world. Biggest smartphone manufacturer in the world back then, 2010. And they had realized suddenly that 2010, they realized that, you know, Apple is starting to beat them. Like Apple is now integrating. So you can do like email on your phone, which now sounds like I'm born in like the the 18th century when I say that. But it was literally like around, I think it was 2009 or or 2000. It was actually 2010, I think, when Apple suddenly said, we're going to support Microsoft Exchange, which means like people who were not, people who were business people could get like read their email on their phone and i think that scared the uh, blackberry (laughs) because previously all other phones were kind of a bit of a toy like and they for for business and then suddenly like they felt this is gonna happen and i think what what was weird about it is that what apple what what blackberry didn't do is blackberry kind of didn't double down on strengths it was not that they said we're gonna 10x business they essentially said we have to become an entertainment company as well, which was very, very strange in hindsight. Um, but I get it partly because the Blackberry phones were very dull. So I think people kind of felt why would I have a boring phone when I kind of have, well, like a funny, fun phone. Um so first they acquired us and at the acquisition, the CEO asked me, you want to run mergers and acquisition for me. So you want to like buy companies for me? And I said, no, I have no idea about this. Like I, I know science because my parents and brothers are scientists. I know engineering, software development, team, sales, finance and acquisitions. I don't know anything about it, like nothing. <laughs> I I love spreadsheets, but I hate other people's spreadsheets. So <laughs> you know, acquiring company means you have to read a lot of other people's spreadsheets. I was like, no, I don't think I'm the right person. And then this wonderful, funny man, who I really like, Michael, Liserides, he was like, well, either you do that or are the general manager of this unit of you know two to three hundred people and i was like i don't want to be the general manager of this unit i really don't like i really don't want to be that i said he said i know so i was like okay okay <laughs> uh, when do i have to decide well the announcement is tomorrow so i was like okay so i have to tell you tonight if i'm going to run an for you. i was like yeah okay so i'll run MA and realize i'm going to do this approximately like a week probably before they realize that i don't know what i'm doing <laughs> i ended up doing it for roughly two years it was amazing. I ended up two years after two years actually quit because they started trying to out Apple Apple, um, and I had we, had we had worked with Motorola and Google and Samsung and all of these players who since two thousand seven try to out Apple Apple, and you can outdo Apple in many things, but you can't out Apple them. Like that's the stupidest yeah, interesting. thing to do. Interesting. And it was what. And it ended up, like, I ended up having all of these conversations and conference calls and meetings with people high and up, like, up and down the ladder at BlackBerry. I was like, we're just being dumber and dumber. And BlackBerry had never, I think, faced a challenge, which was like this kind of challenge, like an existential challenge, where they weren't the smart people in the room. They They had always been, like, the best. Even if the beavers, they were small, they'd always been the best. Like Motorola was their previous only competitor in a sense in North America. And Motorola always, had always been very different. from them. So they just, they just knew everything. And they were that the problem was when somebody came in and like when I came in and said, you're worth a look mm-hmm. Then it wasn't very appreciated. So, and I nobody tried to fire me anything because when you're an M&A, nobody tries to fire you for telling <laughs> the truth. People are just like, oh, it's one of the M&A, M&A dad dudes like <laughs> um, <laughs> But after like, a couple of months of that, in the end i mean i worked there for one and a half year and had an amazing time but after like the three next months i just start feeling that no i mean this is not going to go anywhere like this is like i'm just going to be fighting these people and telling them things they don't want to hear and i got became more and more kind of polarizing with my opinions as well so essentially i i just one day i felt like i'm just going to resign and they said yeah yeah you can resign You stay for this project integration with this company and you can you can leave and then i left and then to summarize essentially career-wise after that in the shortest way is I started angel investing. Okay. And the reason was really because when you're in m a uh, like you would buy companies, right? So you see that I had started a company and I had bought a lot of companies and I just met all these amazing people, like these amazing people who build interesting companies and interesting technologies and interesting communities and whatever. And I just felt that I, I kind of wanted to get back into it again, but also I felt I didn't really know where to start. Like, what am I going to do? So I end up just feeling I'm just going to help people. I'm just going to you know meet them, hang out with them, give people advice if I can give advice. I don't I don't think I can give advice, but maybe maybe I can do introductions for them to customers or something. And then what happens? Of course, if you end up meeting a person a couple of times and you like them and they're raising a round, like you end up saying, yeah, I can I can invest maybe. So I ended up investing in startups. And interesting. So did like I invested roughly? It's like I think to date now I've done hundred and something companies. And huh. it was, I mean, some of them have been amazing. A lot of them are long gone and, and dead. Some have been acquired all over the place. And it was amazing because I think for me, it allowed me essentially to. To kind of get to see the world through a lot of people's eyes, which sure. because I mean, you get to work with extraordinary people all across the globe who's trying to tackle really hard problems and. None of them are tethered to anything. Because, like, when you work at, you know, whatever, Apple or Google or Monroe or any one of our customers, like when you're any of them, yeah, you're part, you're cog in a cog in a big thing, right? Like, it's, but when you're a founder, you can just change. Like, you can change what the company does tomorrow. You can hire anybody you want. Like, there's just so much freedom. I mean, I'm not saying freedom as in, oh, you can do whatever you want, but, like, degrees of freedom. Right. Um, I think, jokingly, I always try to say to people, the amazing thing with an entrepreneur, this is not me, this is actually Phil Libin, but... Um, you can work any 60 hours you want uh, during the week. It's just like, it's not that you get more free time. It's just like you get to choose a bit more. Um, yeah. So I think it was it was really extraordinary because I got to meet all these people. And then I think the thing it did for me as well is that it it's kind of, I started seeing the world very differently. I started realizing all these things that I hadn't thought about before because suddenly like I had to kind of help people with the challenges I had never had. So somebody could have said like, how do I think about I don't know, like how do I tell my colleagues the truth? And I was like, What do you mean? Like I mean, <laughs> you just tell them the truth, and they were like, No, you can't tell people the truth because they would just you know, you they can just throw you out if you tell certain things. And it was amazing because then I was like, Okay, interesting. I don't feel this at all. Like I I tell people what I think. There's been this other people. This person is not unique. So there must be other people who have this problem or proclivity or whatever you call it and that was great because then i could talk to all the other founders i worked with or i could read a lot of books about it interview people i did a couple of podcasts i did a lot of things to just try to solve problems for the people that i was working with and for me it was extremely educational and part of it like and of course a lot of it was reading so one of the books i bumped into then was the mom test by rob fitzpatrick okay. and it was one it was an extraordinary book because what Rob Fitzpatrick realized was when he was building a mobile app, he was building a cooking app and he was thinking, I'm going to build a cooking app for the iPad when it was pretty new. And he thought, who do I know that cooks a lot? My mom. So then he called up his mom and said, like, Hey mom, I'm making a cooking app for the iPad. And his mom was like, Oh, that's amazing. That's great. Rob. And he was <laughs> like, Oh, will you use it? And she was like, of course I would use it. And he was like, yes, got us customer like in 10 seconds. Right. <laughs> he started building this app and essentially just runs it by his mom all the time. And it takes him a couple of months until he realized that his mom would never use this app. he She's only super, super happy to be working with our son. And she's super positive to, you know, be involved in his life. And he realizes that that's what everybody does. When everybody when anybody like does anything, you try to ask a person who just confirm that what you're doing is okay. And that's exactly the wrong thing. So he wrote this amazing book, which was like a user manual of how to, not talk to people who will tell you that you're right, but talk to people who will tell you you're wrong and then how to handle it. And it was great because previously I had a problem, but I worked with people that had that problem. so re- It was really, really, like really informational for me. And um, yeah, and I think what happened after that, then after that, I ended up working at a VC fund in Berlin, which was a deep science fund. So like very, very deep and complex questions about. How do you generate energy for the whole planet? Or how do you grow meat in a vat? Or whatever, these like really fundamental questions about what is life and stuff like that. And I think that was really interesting because then I had to start thinking about subjects, which is kind of like, you know, one of those computer games when you play and you're kind of, you know, your god or whatever it is, like yeah. you're if you're yeah. playing civilization or whatever, you have to think about like how do you run a planet? Like how do you run a country? How do you run like a city? Um because like when you're, when you're thinking about deep science, sometimes you have to really think, how can you generate electricity in one part of the country and then transport it to another? How do you actually transport electricity? I have no idea. And then you just have to figure it out. And that forced me to read completely different books and talk to completely different people and about certain things which are science, but a lot about, about life. And just like, why do people do things? What drives people? um and an amazing book i bumped into then was finite and infinite games uh, by james Carse, in a book which has an amazing story as well what happened with that book is that james cars was he's an american he's writing this book about essentially you know how to live life that's kind of the it's a very simple subject um he goes to france he spends a lot of time in sitting in france typing out this amazing book he really thinks it through then he flies back to new york Meets his publisher and says, like, I've got the first draft. His publisher says, oh, cool. Like, you know, when to hand it over, James looks in his bag. I can't find my manuscript. And it's like, oh, oh, do you think you might have forgot it on the airplane? And I was like, no, forgot it in Paris. So then instead of just, like, you know, I don't know, jumping out of a building or anything, he just essentially gets home, takes a typewriter, a computer, I think it's a computer, And then types everything he remembers more or less over like a weekend. Just feels I'm just gonna write whatever I remember. And is it amazing? Because and then he goes to his publisher and like this is it. Like, you know, I don't remember most of it, but this is what I remember. And the cool thing about the book is that it's it has no references. Like it's a like it's a manual about like life. It's like what is life and like how do you live life? But it's no zero academic things in it, no references, because he doesn't remember his references. Like he doesn't remember anything, like you know. All of the things that are uninteresting he doesn't remember them he only remembers like the core and that makes it tiny book and it's dense i mean i think the technical term is called it's dense like it's just (laughs) it's really dense and it's really good and like you read it and you realize how can you write like you realize that these nobody writes like this nobody writes a book like which only has the point in it because you know that if you would spend like two more weeks or two more months he will to you know tell you a couple stories you know fact check he doesn't have the time he's just sick of this book now so he just (laughs) writes only the point and he's done and he's like i think it's like 120 pages or whatever um it's amazing anyways um work at this deep science fund and the deep science fund uh now we're at like it's four years ago three or four years ago and then i just working with all these amazing international people i get to meet like Nobel laureates and, you know, like super, super impressive people that are trying to change the world. I realized that some, one day I just felt that so many things that. I I'm about that's say powerful people. And I don't really mean like powerful, but like we people uh, and like, you know, we're like Adventure fund puts a spotlight on whatever I think is interesting they say, we're gonna invest in Bitcoin and mobile gaming, whatever. And they then that's the spotlight, right? They they'll go after right. that thing. So the thing is like this fund I was at, which is an amazing fund and awesome people, the spotlight was like solve, solve hard problems. But some of the hard problems, I just felt, this this is actually not really a relevant problem because we're obviously in a world right now where we have a climate crisis. And I mean, this is where it like, so this is 2018, 2019, 2020, or sorry, 2018, 2019 it is. And I started realizing that we're investing and spending time on and focusing on and writing articles. And, you know, we're working a lot of subjects, not only us, the fund, but like the world, the politicians, the everybody on subjects that are not that important if we're not solving these climate problems. And in the beginning, this was like, like a little itchy thing. You have like a little eczema on your back that irritates you. But after a while, it just turns out to be like a full, like your body is just a bit rash. Like, I could just, if I were meeting an entrepreneur working on like mental health, and I'd worked a lot in mental health, I was just like, mental health will not matter at all unless we fix climate change. And then, like, I didn't want to be a person. So I was like, in the meeting, I was like, really caring. I was really trying to help them. And you go to the next meeting, and people are saying, how do we make money that is not dependent on countries, like essentially different, like Bitcoins and blockchain stuff, right? And I was like, who the fucking cares? Like, you know, this is not going to be relevant unless we fix one of these problems. And then you go to the next person and they're working on cancer. And like, it's super important, right? But just felt cancer, like seriously, like if we have four plus degrees, it's going to be constant civil war and famine. And like, I'm not going to be disrespectful to cancer. But it's super important. But this person should spend their time on cancer because this person is a cancer genius. But I'm not a cancer genius. Like, I shouldn't spend my time on this. Like, I just can't anymore. And that just became, like, more and more during 2019. I just got, I really felt either I have to go off in a cabin in norland and read a fiction book and just stop reading the news and just hide from everything. The problem <laughs> is I have three kids, so it's going to be tricky to find any place to do that <laughs> uh, and and be a nice person. Or I just essentially, you know, just dive in, in the place I'm most afraid. I just realized that you know when you drive on the highway and there's an accident and you just rubber duck and look at this accident like you don't want to but you can't not do it and then you like if you're not driving you you're in the passenger seat you check on your phone or like you type the highway and just look what happened right and just completely meaningless and i think that there are two i was at this point where i was like i was staring on this highway i was staring at the climate problem and i see what i'm doing i'm seeing i'm staring at this accident about to happen and happening in real time. And either, either I just like, you know, throw my phone out the window and just stop reading the news and stop looking at the, the car crash and just say it's I'm not part of this. Like I'm not like I'm just I'm just not gonna do this. I'm just gonna not think about it. Or I stop by the highway, like stop by the people and try to help them and I go like full in. I just go like I'm not a nurse, I'm not a doctor, but I have to become one now. Like I just have to here and now spend all my time and just work with climate change. And essentially that's what happened. So I stood by that like mental road, like fork in the road and realized, okay, I'll just have spent all my time in climate. And then I started thinking about how and I built a little mental framework about how to, depending on who you are, how do you try to move a subject and just try to think through that problem in general, like, you know, build a couple of, build like a thought process of, what can a person do about any problem like give cancer or or climate change build that framework then took myself through the framework like step by step and then got to a point where i stared at that point and realized it's either like a journalist or kind of a climate and venture capitalist and i have invested in 150 plus companies for 10 years so i guess that's like actually where i might be good maybe and then started this fund with two friends and open up shop june 2020 we must in 15 companies so far three in california one in netherlands three in uk three in germany uh one in denmark two in sweden and it's amazing
1: and that's uh pale blue dot correct
2: that's pale blue dot
1: walk us through uh some of the companies that pale blue dot is invested in and then maybe give us uh, why you invested in them and uh, anything else you want to talk about them?
2: Yeah. I mean, so we invested in 15 different companies. And I think that what I find interesting is I think that a lot of people tend to be very paralyzed when it comes to to climate change. Like, I mean, you know, for obvious reason, but I think that a lot of, I think that people are paralyzed when they're thinking about what can I do. And personally, I think that what people shouldn't do is that people shouldn't like we can all think about what what we can do less of. Like we can fly less or drive an internal combustion car less and eat less meat. And there are a lot of things we can do less of. But I think what what I think we end up doing a lot is being ashamed. So people focus a lot of like, OK, I'm just going to have to do less. And if we if we just, just do less, I think after a while, like, life becomes kind of meaningless. And I think that, of course, me, not eating meat, not driving internal combustion engine car, not flying, Those things are not vital to life. But I think that when you start going down the line and realize like every single thing you do actually contributes to climate change, like everything you buy, like if you get kids, just everything, then like, why are you alive? Like maybe the biggest contribution you can do is commit suicide. And I don't think that's very, I don't think that's argument is very good. I personally hate when people say, oh, the worst contributor to climate change you can do is get kids. And when people say that, especially if I'm on stage, I just say, you know what? If none of us gets kids, we don't even to solve climate change. Like we can just we can just yeah. do whatever we want because there's not going to be anybody around. Yep. Um, so I think it's like some of these arguments are just so dumb. When I feel like it's it's typically like when you just do the math on something, but you don't really realize what it means for like people. Right. So so I think that so we we do some and looked at some companies that are uh, like do less of things. But generally we tend to do stuff that tries to solve a problem by letting people kind of, I'm not going to say live their life as it is, like not normally, but at like trying to say, if you want to go from A to B, or if you want to eat an amazing, tasty thing or whatever it is, like you should be able to do it. You should be able to do it 2021, you should be doing 2030, you should be doing 2040. And that's kind of the way we think about stuff. So we don't think about if somebody says we have a cattle farm and we want to do less uh like footprint with that cattle farm we have less climate effect we just feel like "Mm, i'm not sure because like there might be that we shouldn't have cattle farms whatsoever in 2040. so the question is can you Um. figure out something which is amazing to eat and people will think it's really tasty but it's not negative for the world at all that would be best um but of course that's a hard problem so it might be that it's impossible um and i think that so some of the companies listed are Kind of like keep doing what you're doing but choose a better route and it's going to be you know it's going to be cheaper it's going to be more convenient it's going to be healthier for you so like we have to the person buying it they can't say i hate but i know it's good for climate or it can't be a cfo of a company saying this is going to cost four times as much but i need to do it because of climate it's just like some people will but most people won't and then it's not going to work so a couple of companies we've done on that is like we've done a company called, for example, we got one company called Betterfish. And Betterfish is what they do is that they take seaweed, so like algae, out of the ocean, and then they know everything about algae. One of the founders is a documentary film on algae farming. He's spent lots of his years in the world of seaweed and algae. And the other person is a is a chef and a um, like a food scientist. So knows how like you know, think about taste. Um, yeah, and it's a they're a perfect, they're a super combo and the thing is if you take kelp or seaweed or any of these like you know big things it's like you can take it's like think about it as a tree like if you say like oh okay, thing, it's a big chestnut tree so like you can take the chestnuts of course you can take the leaves you can take the barks you can take the twigs and all these things have different properties they taste differently they have different like you know things you can do with them algae is the same thing so like if you take one of these like big things and then of course on top of that there's not only chestnuts there's like hundreds of different species of algae, just as trees. Yeah. So Jacob, he like, he knows like all of these species and he knows some of the properties. He doesn't know how to taste necessarily, but there's some, a lot of communities in the world eats algae one or another. So there's something you can just know like, oh, this one is like very good for this or good for that. But you know, very tricky to do this with or very expensive, or whatever. And then Denise, the other founder, she's like, okay, let's try that out. So the first product they made, they made like a delicatessen like, you know, Kind of like caviar kind of thing, but made out of seaweed. So not like a complicated thing because caviar kind of tastes like seaweed in a sense. but it's <laughs> it really like, whoa, you've made kind of luxury caviar, but there's no fish involved, right? Right? The second product they made is canned tuna. and okay it tastes and feels like canned tuna. Wow. and it's like it is so close that when we met them, they sent us a box of um like um tuna mayo uh corn sandwiches like you know okay. the classical kind of triangle sandwiches like you buy on supermarkets yeah yeah send us a bunch of those we unwrapped them uh i took a bite and let's like vegan it says vegan may on it so i was like okay it's totally fine with me take a bite in it and then i just spit it out immediately i'm like literally like in the room my two colleagues i was like my colleagues were like what's wrong they it's this is tuna and my colleagues what do you mean they send us tuna sandwiches they think it's funny or something this is tuna my colleagues are like what is it tuna yeah this is tuna and like we start, i like up the sandwich and look like, it is tuna and then like a couple of seconds later i'm like is it and then my two <laughs> colleagues start biting into it they're like is it and we just start sitting starting eating these sandwiches And like i don't know and it's like oh my god they made something which is exactly like tuna and the cool thing about it is that tuna, it's not super good for people. Like it contains a lot of heavy minerals. Tunas are big fish, they eat a lot of small fish. Small fish eat even smaller fish. So if there's anything like, I don't know, mercury in the ocean, the small fish, eat, the fish eats them and it just like gets higher and higher concentration the higher up you go. So some of these bigger fish have a lot of it. Secondly, tuna, you know, you go out and slaughter and a big animal on the sea, pretty nasty, but also you have a big petrol boat doing it like you have big fridges on the sea where you throw these tuna in so that they won't get bad. So like you have all of the things we know is bad for climate. You have a big I mean a boat is like a big ass car. It's just like it's spewing out oil, right? Secondly, you have a huge fridge or freezer and the freezer is open. Like it's not that it's a big door on it. It's open because you just throw in fish in it. So like if if anyone us had our freezer open, we know that it's bad. Like we just yeah. like this just waste so much energy. This is this but on the sea. All the time. So like Wild. pretty pretty like, you know, if we can replace it with something else good. And then the other cool thing about seaweed is that seaweed, it is it grows in the oceans and it's like it just increases biodiversity. It's like great for fish. It's just like like the whole place is gathered. And it sucks down carbon from the sky, just like any plant. So the crazy thing about this is that it's healthier for people, it doesn't contain mercury and stuff, in the same extent that whatsoever. It doesn't kill animals it doesn't spew out a lot of petrol and and you know freezers uh, uh, refrigerants whatever it regrows oceans and it sucks down carbon for the sky and it's cheaper to buy and make than tuna so like what's wrong with it like there's just like there's just nothing wrong with it and those when we meet those kind of companies we just feel like this is too good to be true um and there are a couple of those companies when i think it's so fascinating because when i feel like When you're going into a problem, seeing climate change as a problem, like if you think, oh no, we can't use steel, then we can't build this thing. Then of course you can't build that thing. But if you go in and say, hey, what if we can make it out of something that has a lot of carbon in it? Like, so when we make this thing, we have to suck down carbon from the sky and build it out of carbon. And then like, that's crazy, but if it works, that means every time we build this thing, you would need more carbon. So can we, if we can do that, every time we build this thing, we actually suck our car from the sky. And then suddenly you realize, oh my God, carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is really hard. Like and then you it's really light. And then suddenly you realize all these good things about it. Instead of coming in and saying, we can't, you kind of say, what if? And I think that's it's so cool with some of these companies. Um and I mean we've done 15 of them, so I can talk forever. Sure, keep going. This is awesome. Another company we've done, um, a UK company, this one, but a bit of fish is in Germany. Um, Fighting for what they do is that when you, when we we have plants, right? Like, you know, normal plants, potatoes and tomatoes and whatever we have. Um, right. We have tried to improve those since forever. Like, you know, 14th century and going on. Like we try to make potatoes better. They think about these, like we have hundreds of years of monks that are trying to crossbreed these and they select the biggest ones and they do all these things. And then lo and behold, the last hundred years, you have people like Mazento who just say, hey, We can just go into the DNA, we just rip it apart, and we can make a new plant. And the reason that worked was because almost everything that Monsanto and those people did was that they changed the plant so it could handle pesticides, that you can spray it more. So they just said, we'll just make it really resilient to Roundup or something like that, something really, really like a poison. Because when you plant it, if you failed with the editing and you spray, it doesn't matter because then it's going to die. So, like, if you have like a Frankenmonster, Corn, well if you spray the whole field it's gonna die so it doesn't matter like it's fine you can just you can be pretty clumsy when you edit these things because the ones that are right they're gonna have the thing you want the ones that are not right they're gonna die so not a problem and now we know we don't want all these things sprayed we don't want these things like we don't like some of these edits are brutal to like to to the soil so okay so we can't like, we can't crossbreed like the monks did because that's not going to take us anywhere. Like we can't, we can't get wheat to grow in salt soil. And the problem is with climate change is that because we have these storms, we get salt water in in on land. If you get salt water in a rice paddy, well, guess what? You can't grow rice in it anymore because you know, nothing, No, nothing loves salt except mangroves. Um. So most, most plants don't really cope with it. So the question is, can you make wheat handle salt more? Well, if you're a 17th century monk, it's going to take you hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. If you're Monsanto, well, you can do it, maybe. But the thing is, nobody wants your product because you have to spray the shit out of this thing. So, is there a way we can do precision editing? And what's super cool, what Fightiform realized is that you can, but you have to go about it completely differently. So the simplest way of explaining what they do is like: if you take a fiction book, like a completely normal fiction book, um. And then you have this crime novel and you want to just remove, you can't remove it. You can't change the story because then it's like, that's pretty brutal. Then you're like, you can just cut and paste chapters. That's what Masanta do. They just put in a new chapter, rip out a whole chapter. So it's going to be a really weird book, but you want to remove, like you can think about what can we do now here? So then you say, I want to make it very hard to understand why she killed him in the book. So can we make it like just really hard for the reader to get why the murderer, she killed the dude in the book. And then you find every part of the book where they talk about intent and thoughts about why she killed him you just take those sentences and you make them very hard to read you take but you don't like put in new text you take you change the sentence order you pick and like you move the sentences far apart you essentially you just make it harder to read but by just like you know not by throwing a new text but by moving the text around and DNA like interpretation, like what happens in, in, in the cells in the body, it's kind of like high school students. Like if you if you have a book which is really hard to read, well, nobody's gonna get it. So when you have DNA in, in the in the plant or in the body, which is not really easy to understand, nothing happens. The body just goes, okay, I guess this is nothing, then let's continue. So that means that you can remove traits. So then Phytoform said, Hmm, we can remove traits. And then how do we figure this out? And then they built an amazing, super complex machine learning solution that emulates all these different things that a DNA does and then looks at what's the smallest change you can do. Because you don't want to do big changes. They have a lot. There's a lot of problems if you do big changes because it's very unpredictable. What's the, what's the key sentences in this book and like what way can we re- move this lettering around and word around uh, and maybe move the sentence around a bit so that it's going to be really hard to read and then emulate that in, in like machine learning style uh, and like in massive uh, tests. And then we get a couple of versions. They say, okay, let's, let's print this book. Like let's make a plant and they make that plant. And then they test in a super smart way of verifying what they did. And all the things they get out on the plants that are growing, they take all that data and they move, move that back into the machine learning algorithm and see this is what happens. And they can just loop this a couple of times. And then they figure out how to actually edit the genome of plants without wow. doing anything brutal like you can be super high precision very cool yeah there are a lot of fun companies working with a lot of really fun people and it's super cool because some of these people there i mean i like what i love the most about what we do is that we get to meet and work with people who they know stuff and can do stuff that if i spend 20 years on it i probably couldn't do what they're doing like they have you know 20 plus years of the thing they do And some of them, of course, they started this thing five years ago, whatever. But they're all uniquely capable of what they're doing. They might have spent, you know, twenty years in in doing vegan tuna or whatever. But they but they have done stuff. That means that they and they're focused. They're spending all the time, just like we did in our first company. And I think that's such a luxury because I am just spending time with people that I'm in awe of and really I'm impressed by. At the same time as I am in the luxury position of being able to help them a bit, because when you invested in hundred plus companies and build a couple of them yourself, I'm, I've i done so many stupid things that I can see somebody about to kind of drive on a cliff and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't do that thing. Like I've done that thing. <laughs> um, so it's it's really useful to kind of have hurt yourself so many times before or have it like with the other companies have seen people hurt. So um, that's it's a really, really wonderful uh, thing to work with, even if it's like very time consuming.
1: No, that that's amazing, man. So. For people that maybe have some of these revolutionary ideas, how do they go about potentially getting uh pale blue dot to actually invest in them or or get your attention?
2: Yeah, so it's actually, it's in a sense, it's fairly easy. Like you can literally go to our webpage, paleblue.vc, as in .com, but .vc. And like on the page, there's a button you can click and you send in stuff to us. It's fairly easy. The thing I would say though is I mean, we receive a fair share of like um, infinite energy energy generation machines. People are like, "I came up with a thing. If you make a wheel spin and you do this, you could just print energy. Wow!" And so it's really tricky because you can get our attention, but the thing which I think is how do you actually boil down the thing you do to kind of its core and make it fairly easy to understand? Um, so you know, if you're if you're making something which is crazy amazing you know, energy generation or one of these things, we're probably not the right people. Like we are we are not energy scientists. Like none of us right. build a fusion reactor, at least not multiple times. So <laughs> typically you have to think about how can you make it so that you get somebody interested in it? And the thing is, even if you talk to like a deep science fund, like where I were before, I mean, it's not that like, even if you're a scientist, you, you don't want a paper sent to you. So I usually recommend people to kind of, you know, try to figure out what is what I think I can do. What like, what's the what's the thing? And then, first of all, do it. Like, just don't write down the thing and say I'm going to look for money. Um, I think that we live in a very, very strange time where I think that a lot of people like if you take an analogy with startups, because everybody thinks like startups is kind of normal or whatever. But if you like, let's say you send, we were talking about uh, writing a New York Times bestseller. So like you think, I think I've got a New York Times bestseller in me. Like I think I have write this amazing book. And I'm a publisher, like pivot the publisher. So then you contact me and say, Hey, I've got this amazing story. Like I like it's really, really cool. And I've seen like I've seen like your, your publisher, you're amazing. I love the front covers. I love like all the help you do, I like all the lists you're on. Can you help me? And I feel like the first thing a publisher will tell you is like, Yeah, just write a small draft and send over i'm happy to read it right and then a lot of people they say either a i can tell you (laughs) it's like what you like what do you want yeah i win a million dollars in advance and i'm gonna write the book for you i'm like dude i can't give you a million dollars and i don't know what the book you're gonna write like i get asked 100 times a day by people want to write a book for us and you know get it into the like you know get it onto the shelves yeah but my my story is uniquely good then the thing is what would you do the thing would you do then is you know you write the first chapter, or you write a novel like you you just try to boil down the simplest, or you write a synopsis. You just say this is the story, this is the thought, this is the angle, this is the unique part, and you just try to boil it down. And then you contact the publisher and says, "That's this is cool idea. What about this idea?" And then you know I would read it. If it takes me ten minutes to read, I would totally read the novel and be like, "I think this is a great novel. I think this is it could be a really good book. but let's go." And then of course I'm going to figure out. Do you have any grit whatsoever you know, like do you know what it means to write a book like it's it's a lot of work it's not it's like a novel you can crunch out on a weekend but i mean writing a book it's, it's a year plus project so like of course i'm going to ask a lot of questions right so like what i recommend people when they talk to a vc or any investor is just try to like boil down that synopsis or write a full like novel like just start doing it just if you think I think I can make a vegan vending machine at hospitals. Then it's like, yeah, why don't you do it? No, I didn't need a million dollars. Why do you need a million dollars? Cause I need like a super high kitchen. I need a gourmet chef. I need vending machines. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't need any of those things. You essentially need to go to hospital with stuff you made and you need to be able to sell those there. And maybe you shouldn't start at hospitals because hospitals might be really tricky to get into, like people might not allow you to sell food at a hospital. Can you do it at a a school? And you're like, I don't want to do it at school. I want to do it at a hospital and I want to have a gourmet chef. It's like, no, just start by something easy. Do it at a party. Like just do something super simple. And it's like, yeah, but I want a vending machine. Yeah, but maybe just put up a shelf. Maybe just like go to a university and just put up a shelf. And at that shelf, you put the food and you write a note, hey, Venmo me money. I cook those things and a picture yourself and you're standing like 20 meters, like 20 yards away from it and look at people and you just try to help out. And everybody's like, yeah, I want a million dollars first. It's like, no, you don't need a million dollars. You can probably start doing it now. And I think that's the thing I always try to figure out this, like, I think we just want, like, we just want some money to just say, this is awesome. And here's some money and here's like a whole army of people behind you and we're going to help you. And the only people who get that treatment is like, if Elon Musk wakes up tomorrow and says he wants to build a railway company that has like, you know, luxury vacations to Canada, and the first rail starts from Wisconsin, people would just like, here's a million bucks, here's $10 million, here's $100 million, just go build it to Elon. But if you're not Elon Musk, people would just say, okay, like, have you thought through this thing? Why would you take the train from Wisconsin to Canada on vacation? So I think that, I think the easiest way of doing it is just make a small thing, get a group of people around you, get something together that kind of works. And when you have those things, you can usually boil it down to a couple of slides, super super stupid, dumb slides, just like Keynote, PowerPoint, kind of Google slides, and just explain what is the problem I'm trying to solve. I'm trying to solve the problem that when you go to the hospital, there's no vegan food, no food is healthy for you, you're sick. You need healthy food, and you can't have people standing around because people are at hospitals twenty-four-seven. So we're making a vending machine. And by the way, now you're thinking, oh, you can buy it like you know from whatever, DoorDash or Deliveroo or whatever. No, you can't. And then you explain why, like you tried. So this is why we need a vending machine. We've done it, but we've done it like differently. And hey, we sold this many, you know, meals. Now we're scaling up. I think people read really it. They go like, this is interesting. Like, let's talk to these people.
1: No, I, I think that's actually really good advice. And I think you're right. So many people overcomplicate something or or don't try something simple at first just to see if what they're trying to do is even viable at like a simple basic level. I, I think that's actually really good advice.
2: Yeah, and I think you can do that about absolutely everything. And I think that I, I, I've personally done this for things that I'm like, I know nothing about. Like, I think a lot of people would say immediately, aha, uh-huh, if you're a fusion scientist, you can start a fusion reactor company. Like, yes, of course you could, right? But you could also start something completely different. Like, you don't have to have spent 20, 30 years of your life in this background. And I think that I've had personal experience of this in a really fun way because I had a couple of times I felt, I want to learn about this subject and I can read a lot of books, but I really like talking to people about it as well. You want to interview people. So then I realized the best way you can do that is either A, you're to be a student. You just say, I'm writing a thesis about vending machines at hospitals and legislation risks. And can I interview you? People will be like, just like I did you know, when I got the job in Paris. Right. People were just be like, okay, I'll talk to you. It's like nice. You're a student, right? Like it's part of your, your work. Nobody's going to check up if you actually go to Columbia University or anything. People will just be like yeah you're a student like i mean if, unless you're obnoxious and like ask crazy stuff or something people would just be like i'm, I'm going to be nice to you if you're nice to them and don't waste their time and the other way to do it which i've done a couple of times i've been a student quote unquote quite a lot of times good hmm. thing i've done is that i started podcasting something yeah, totally. so 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 10 years ago i thought like how does governance work in the future and what i did is like i just felt i got to figure it out so then i started a podcast which was called um, "Governance: the uh, future of governance governance of the future governance of the future Sorry. And then I just interviewed people who work with governance problems. And, like, how do you make sure that things don't, you know, like, how do you <laughs> a lot, coordinate a lot of people? How do you coordinate a country? And the thing is, these people, they're not being asked a lot. So it was amazing. People I, were able to talk to amazing people. I did another podcast where I thought, I want to talk to science fiction authors about how they design their worlds. Because if you read a science fiction book, think about how extraordinary amount of time that goes into. Like the thing, which is not the story, like all the yeah. like, how do you transport yourself? How do people eat? How does like the job market work? How does pension works? Whatever in the future. And I realized when I read a science fiction book is like all of those things, a lot of times we don't really care about them. They're not like we, we kind of smile when they happen, but it's not that we like spend a lot of time on it. So so an author thought about that for sometimes an hour, sometimes 100 hours. And it's like two places in the book it's mentioned. So I these people must, like they must have thought about it, and I wanna talk about it. And I really wanna know how to boot world building. So I did, I started a podcast and it's it's like essentially the whole question is, I wanna to talk to you about the world you've built, not about the story, not about the characters. And the cool thing what happened is the editors and publishers, they loved it because they don't want you to talk to them about the story because they don't want a podcast where they tell a story because then people don't write the book. But you talking to the authors about the world, go knock yourself out, this is amazing, go. The author, they love talking about it because they've thought about it for thousands of hours, and nobody seems to care. So they really want to talk to you about it. So I ended up talking to like some of the most amazing science fiction authors in the world, and it was amazing. Like you, you email the editor and say, you know, I want to talk to Anne Leckie about this. And they're like, oh sure, let's book a call, like, call with you. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like was it that hard? And like that was amazing. And I like did it for a year and a half, but then after that, I just felt like I I I I, I was like, this is almost too good. Like, I don't know how to take it to the next level. So then I just quit and felt like, I just felt so happy about what it is. And I didn't want to feel it. I didn't want to like, I, I just felt it was done. So I quit. And I think that's, that is the thing you can, you don't have to like bring together the A team and raise like $3 million. You can just start by like, let's just research the problem. Let's try to do it. And then, you know, maybe we are able to do it without anything at all. Um, and maybe then when we figure it out, maybe then we raise money.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's amazing advice, but I know we're sadly out of time. So how about we close as a
2: species, you mean?
1: Well, that too,
2: (laughs) no, we're going to survive.
1: Yeah, well, you're, you're working on it. So with, with a bunch of companies, but let's close the show with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself, pale blue dot, and any other links you want to mention?
2: The easiest thing, the easiest place to find me is probably on Twitter. I um that it's definitely the easiest place I would say. So I am H-A-J-A-K, as in Hampus J Cubson with a K um, on Twitter. And I I'm pretty easy to find um, and I'm, I am I interact with people. So if people write me something, I usually just respond to them. If they say, I want to email you, I usually just DM them my email. It's not harder than that. If people say, Hey, I want to take you out for dinner and have like a three hour conference call with you. I say, Hey, can we just chat over like <laughs> over her, like Twitter or whatever? Like we don't have to meet. You don't know anything. I'm just going <laughs> to waste your time maybe. And then if you want to know more with table dot, it is pale blue dot VC. And then you can like you can see the most of the companies that are announced, like some of the companies we haven't published uh, because the companies have said they don't want to publish it yet. We have we're opening up our research. So like you can uh, find our notion uh, where we publish a lot of the research we do, uh where we go through, like we did a big piece on the seaweed analogy, for example. We've done we've done one on woo, we're doing what we've done, we're doing one on cement, and we just publish what we found. We just go like this is what we found, this is what we thought, super happy to talk to you about it. And one of the reasons we do that is because, you know, like, if you've done a lot of research in something, it's pretty irritating that it's not getting used. So yeah. one of the reasons is we just feel like, let's just, you know, publish it, at least. Um, so yeah, that then you can find that there as well. Um, yeah, I think those are the best places.
1: Very cool, as Well, again, I really appreciate you taking time of your day to be on the show. and. Look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your night.
2: Great. Thanks a lot. You too.
1: Thank you. Bye. Right. That was great. What'd you guys think? <laughs> great.
0: Good. Oh, that was awesome. And yeah. got a lot out of him, so it. So it's awesome. Thank you for tuning in to the Learner.co show. If you're looking to be a guest, try out our app or want to get in touch, please visit Learner with two L's at www.learnerco. The music for the show is by Electric Mantra. Thanks for listening, and keep on learning.